This is a live episode of Fear and Wonder, brought to you today by The Conversation and the Climate Council. In this series, we're taking you inside the UN's era-defining climate report by the hearts and minds of the scientists from all around the world who wrote it. So in the regular series, we've been working our way through different aspects of the IPCC reports. So first, we had a group of episodes about the physical science, and then we met some researchers who worked on the impacts and adaptation report. And we've also got episodes on the mitigation and synthesis reports. And in today's bonus episode, we're thinking about what comes next. So we're going to zoom out for a big picture view of where we're at now that the IPCC process is all done. And we're going to think a little bit about where we're heading next. Um, the other important thing to say today is that I'm flying solo without Joel. Um, and this episode is not so much from all around the world as normal. Uh, so we have three guests who have their feet firmly on the ground in Australia. Professor Leslie Hughes is an ecologist in the Department of Biological Sciences at Macquarie University and an expert on the impacts of climate change on species and ecosystems. She was a lead author for the IPCC's fourth and fifth assessment reports, and she's a counsellor for the Climate Council. Professor Mark Howden is the Director of the Institute for Climate, Energy and Disaster Solutions at the Australian National University. He focuses on the climate impacts and adaptation options for agriculture and food security, the natural resource base, ecosystems and biodiversity, energy, water and urban systems. He's got a lot of focuses. Um, he is a Vice Chair of the IPCC and is among the world's most experienced contributors to the panel. So it's a real honour to have him on the show today. He's been deeply involved in every report since the second one. And finally, Professor Frank Yotso is an environmental economist at the ANU Crawford School of Public Policy and the head of energy at the ANU Institute for Climate Energy and Disaster Solutions. So Frank works on issues to do with climate change and energy in the context of development and economic reform. And he was a lead author on the IPCC's fifth and sixth assessment reports and a member of the core writing team for the synthesis report of the sixth assessment. So thank you very much, Leslie, Mark and Frank for joining with me to chat today. Okay, so all that introduction out of the way. Um, as I said earlier, we're going to cast forward today, but I also think it's informative to start a good chat by looking backwards, especially because we have three of Australia's most eminent scholars on climate change with us. And so, Leslie, I'm curious about how you began working on climate change and also how the field has changed since you started. Well, thanks, Michael, and it's great to be here and, and hi to um, my colleagues, Frank and, and Mark. I'm probably the only climate change scientist in the world, I guess, that got into climate change because they were sick of ants. Um, I, I'd done my PhD on ant behaviour and ant ecology. I felt that it was time for a change and perhaps a new career um, uh, direction, and it was around about 1990, and I, and I wrote a postdoc proposal about climate change. So I got in on the climate change science part fairly early, um, and the the thing about climate change, of course, is that once you get into climate change, I don't think anybody ever gets out of it. So I'm still there after thirty odd years. And what made you what made you choose climate change? It's a big change from ants, right? 
It, it was a big change for Mance. Um, look, it was suggested by my then PhD supervisor, and and I guess I got into it from a really an intellectual academic perspective. It sounded like something interesting. It sounded like something that might be useful at some stage and that, um, you know, I might have a better chance of actually getting a real job with real money um, working on an applied issue like that, um, at least more than I would if I'd stayed in ant behaviour. But, of course, over time um, it became the, the social and political and economic issue that it is today. So compared to when I started, when it was really just a kind of of academic interest, it's a very, very different beast these days. And um, I gather that, that you and Mark go uh, a long way back uh, working on climate change together. Yes, we, we met, I think, um, uh, must have been round about the... T- Oh, in the 90s anyway, um, but Mark and I actually did run the first, we think the first workshop ever on climate change impacts on ecosystems and species in Australia, which I think was about 2002 because the workshop report came out in 2003. Uh, and I think the notable thing about that workshop is that we held it in a fairly small meeting room at CSIRO and I think that we, we basically had the entire population of people working on biodiversity impacts and climate change in that room at the time. Um, I would also go and give talks at the annual meetings of the Ecological Society of Australia conferences, and I would often be the only person even mentioning climate change in a talk back then. Um, these days you can barely find a talk that doesn't mention climate change, so it really shows the difference in how many people were working in the area and the, and the general scientific interest and how it's grown since the 90s. Um, and so in this podcast, we've been speaking to climate scientists who were involved in the IPCC's most recent round, the sixth assessment. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, you were involved in the fourth and fifth. Um, what was your experience like as an IPCC author? Well, I will never forget the very first meeting of the fourth assessment, which was for my working group, which was working group two, in the UN um, hall, assembly hall in Vienna. And I remember sitting in this amazing building, you know, with all the little microphones and the translators up in the boxes and all of that sort of thing, with an absolute imposter syndrome on steroids, um, and sitting there thinking, if I just sit here very, very quietly, maybe nobody will actually realise that I probably shouldn't be here. Um, so it was very, I was very awestruck, I think, by being involved in something like that. Um, but look, overall, the experience of both the fourth and the fifth assessment reports was an incredible experience. It was really wonderful. It was very humbling. Um, but very satisfying to feel part of uh, and a very small cog in a very large and important wheel. Um, and I look back on that time with, with great fondness um, and be, and I'm just really gratif- grateful that I had that opportunity. I, one, one thing that sort of struck me has been a great pr- privilege for me working on this show is being able to interview scientists from all around the world. And I guess I hadn't sort of really grasped the breadth of People working on this from every every corner of the earth. What, what is kind of like being in a room with with all of these colleagues? You know, covering covering the globe. It's not something that happens in day to day life normally. 
Look, it doesn't. And in fact, I often reflect that the IPCC reports are reports like no other. They're certainly, you know, some of the largest and absolutely most uh, rigorously put together and rigorously reviewed reports that have ever been made in the history of humanity, I think. Um, you know, uh, thousands of people work on them. Um, they're incredibly extensively reviewed. All of those tens of thousands of comments are, are responded to in writing and transparently. Um, and they've had incredible influence. You know, if we think about climate policy without the, the influence of the IPCC, I think we'd be an awful long way behind even where we are today. Um, so, Mark, you've, as I said in the, in the intro, you've worked on this long line of IPCC reports, um, including the most recent one. And I am curious because everyone I have spoken to is like absolutely shattered by the end of the a round of, of working on an assessment. Um, what has motivated you to kind of keep running this marathon to end all all marathons? Thanks, Michael. Like uh, it's it's a, a really interesting question, and and I think my first published paper on IPC, uh, on climate change was in 1987, so it was sort of predated the. Uh, the IPCC, and and at that point, I actually assessed that there'd be a really significant and growing need for evidence base for policy, for industry decisions, and for communities, um, because ultimately climate change affects all of these. And so, I actually worked to get involved in the IPCC initially in the emission inventory side of things, uh, and so I had a significant role in developing the greenhouse gas inventories, which are now used nationally and internationally. And then assessment cycle by assessment cycle, I, I had other roles in the um, the different aspects of, of IPCC, the, the impacts and adaptation, the climate science and the emission reduction side of things. And, and so for me, um, you know, when you look at climate change, it's so varied in its dimensions. It touches almost everything that humans do and everything that happens around the globe. And that's grown importance cycle by cycle and year by year, and and so has the IPCC. It's grown in importance. And so for me, as an outcomes-driven person, you know, I've kept coming back for more IPCC work. I, I think, you know, this is one of the most important things I could have done in my career. Right. And so did you, you know, you could see the need for the evidence-based policy, but did you, did you kind of have a sense early on that it would be influential or that it would kind of take on this role that perhaps you would end up as a Nobel Prize laureate? <laughs> um, well, I, I certainly didn't expect that. Um, but, but for me, uh, I, I always anticipated it was actually going to become really important, but of course we don't project exactly how it's going to pan out. Um, when I started on IPCC um, back in 1991, Broadly speaking, climate change was a pretty marginal activity for most governments. Um, it was not net zero in, in terms of their interests, but it, it wasn't a huge thing on their radar. And and as a, the issue has evolved and as climate change has become more central to many debates um, and decisions, uh, not just the climate side, but also, as Frank will talk about, the energy transition and the emission reduction activities, that's resulted in much, much greater attention and activity by governments in the various IPCC processes. So the, the beast that we have now in the IPCC is very different from what it started as. 
So it started out as much more a science-driven uh, activity, and these days it's much more strongly enmeshed in policy. I think we're going to get to that a little bit later in the chat. Um, so, okay, so we've talked a bit about the past now. I want to um, shift to this sixth assessment report, which has been released in stages since 2021, and the final part of it, the synthesis report, just came out in March. And I want to ask each of you for your reflections. In the podcast, we've been zooming right in close and hearing stories about the science, scientists and the science behind this work. But today, I think it would be helpful to take a wide angle lens and think kind of big picture. So, Frank, you were part of the author team for the synthesis report. Can you help me with this wide angle? Like, what are your key takeaways and what are your kind of key concerns about where we're at right now? Yeah, look, um, to me, the best encapsulation of the findings of the sixth assessment cycle is that by a senior colleague in the IPCC uh, who, who captures this in one, just one sentence, and that is, you know, we're up the proverbial creek, but we still have that paddle. Uh, that's that's really you know, the, uh, the the sense behind this. You know, the observations are, of course, uh, you know, progressively worse. We're at 1.1 degree uh, heating already. Um, we're, we've got more, uh, you know, empirical observations of climatic change already occurring uh, and the losses and damages that that imposes. Um, there's a realization that uh, much greater risks are coming, that, uh, that very, very great uh, action to uh, adapt to climatic impacts will be needed. Uh, and also realization that there will be many impacts to which no adaptation is in, pra- in practice possible. So you know, it's a, a grim picture in terms of the actual observation and the, uh, and the trajectory that, that we're on. Um, emissions uh, have continued uh, to rise and all of that. But now we come to the paddle bit. Uh, and, you know, um, we, we do have at our means all of, of the opportunities to actually reduce emissions and to reduce them sharply as a, as a world community. Emissions growth has, in fact, uh, slowed down a lot over the last decade, a very positive sign. And some of that slowdown is very directly attributable to policy effort to reduce emissions. Um, and, you know, I mean, Sixth Assessment Report has done a painstaking, bottom-up, detailed analysis of opportunities to cut emissions further. And the result is that, you know, if we used every opportunity that's available technologically, then we could be cutting global emissions in half over this decade at affordable economic cost. And that's, of course, an extremely positive assessment, a more positive assessment than what was ever possible before because uh, clean energy technologies are so much more uh, developed and crucially cheaper than they were uh, in the past. And so really it's a, it's a picture of greater urgency, uh, but also greater opportunity and in many ways better prerequisites uh, to actually turn the corner. I mean, this is a yeah, it's a positive story. I, I um I want to come back to you, Mark, um, because uh, alongside Frank, you were part of that team that drafted the summary for policymakers for the synthesis report. And so, for people who aren't in the know, this is the kind of like shortest summary version of a document, which is a summary version of all of the other documents. Um, and it's also the one that gets ticked off word by word by the governments of the world. Um, you mentioned about how it's become a more political process. Um, I wonder if you can reflect on the things that, say, you as part of that author team most wanted to direct policymakers' attention to, um, and then perhaps on what you observed as they negotiated over the, the final text. 
when when we're looking at the summary for policymakers, um, all, all summary for policymakers are negotiated word by word, sentence by sentence, and uh, including the synthesis report. So so it's it's, it's a fairly standard practice um, across uh, IPCC, and that's why I think uh, you know um, Leslie was just talking about how IPCC are some of the most reviewed documents in in human history. And uh, so for me, a key message was a lot of governments and business now are very strongly focused on emission reduction, particularly the energy transition. And uh, and that's a really important part of the picture. But equally as important are reductions in emissions in other sectors, uh, apart from the energy sector. So for example, in uh, agriculture, but also climate adaptation. And, and particularly uh, here in Australia, climate adaptation has almost dropped off the radar. And uh, and so whereas energy transition is very strongly on the policy radar. And so for me, uh, focusing on climate adaptation uh, was really important. And and so some of the sort of key messages in relation to climate adaptation that picked up in that synthesis report is, you know, that the impacts of climate change are here now. Um, they're already very substantial and they're projected to grow very, very substantially. So the problem challenge ahead of us that Frank was talking about is, is pretty clear now. We can also see, though, um, responses in terms of climate adaptation being observed in many places. And so people are taking on board that the climate is changing and they're starting to do things differently. And that can reduce climate risk. But overall, climate adaptation across the globe is not being implemented at the speed and scale to keep pace with the climate change impacts that we're observing. So that means there's a growing adaptation gap emerging, and that gap is actually largest for poor people, mostly in developing nations. Next, I think that when we look at that observed adaptation that we're seeing, it's very fragmented and it's incremental. It's often very sector-specific, and it's also very unequally distributed within countries and between countries and importantly, it's been under-resourced. So of all of the climate finance across the globe, only between 7 and 8% is actually being spent on climate adaptation. That sounds like a pretty problematic sort of proportion. And, and lastly, um, when we talk about climate adaptation, effective adaptation is very clearly crucial to the achievement of the sustainable development goals that all countries have signed up to. And importantly, too, is that if we do adaptation well, it can actually reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So we can align adaptation with emission reduction. But at the moment, we need more tools in our adaptation toolkit than we currently have. And we need to accelerate learning about how to use those well. And we will need new adaptation options because the last key message from this report that I'd like to communicate is that the more the climate changes, the less effective our existing adaptation toolkit is likely to be. And so uh, in terms of that, the how the final wording that comes out in the synthesis report, um, what do you kind of make of the government negotiations over, you know, changing this word and keeping that word or putting an emphasis on one particular aspect or or not? How, how does what, – what's your um, – experience of the, that, that, the way that the science butts up against sort of geopolitics in that process? 
Well, there's always specific interests of different governments and, and sometimes that plays out in very constructive ways um, and sometimes that plays out in not so constructive ways. And uh, and so what we do see, though, I think is is that the floor of the plenary is a great way of uh, reconciling many of those differences and coming up with forms of words which are both consistent with the science um, but also meet the varying policy needs of the people in the room and countries in the room. And uh, so and a critical part of that is that none of those sentences or, or graphs, you know, figures, will get approved um, if the science uh, operators, the, the scientists, the authors, don't agree with what's actually being proposed by governments. And so, uh, so there's a very strong final filter um, here, which is actually... Uh, the science, the evidence, and the views of the authors in the room. So, Leslie, I'm curious about how you view these documents as an outsider this time. Like, wh- what's it like for you? Do you are you are you closing your eyes and looking away, or are you? Uh, what 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 do you what do you make of it? Uh, look, in some ways, um, it was pretty depressing. I mean, the IPCC has been publishing these assessments since 1990. Yet we are still saying, you know, fundamentally delivering the same message, which is that um, human activities are changing the climate. This is having impacts everywhere and on everything. Um, and we are nowhere near where we need to be in terms of turning emissions around um, and to deliver a safer climate in the second half of this century. So from that perspective, the sixth assessment was was sort of more of the same, but but more of it. I mean, clearly, climate change is accelerating, and the impacts are accelerating along with that. As Frank alluded to earlier, however, the, there was just one silver lining, I think, in the overall assessment, which is that while the the window for action is closing, it hasn't already closed. Um, and certainly the Working Group 3 report identified many, many solutions to the problem. It's not that we don't have the solutions, it's that implementing those are behind the technology and the knowledge that we have. So in effect, the scientists are once again delivering a warning um, to the governments of the world, um, but in terms of putting policies into place, it's a matter for those governments and everybody else from the community to business to everyone um, heeding those warnings and changing the way we do things and doing it fast. We've heard about the work of the IPCC over time and then about these kind of big picture findings of this assessment cycle. But I am yeah keen to peer into the future now, but not too far. Um, I want to think about climate mitigation and adaptation in the coming years and so, Frank, if we start with mitigation, as well as the synthesis, this was the other part of the assessment that you were involved in, and I know that you've had a long-standing interest in energy transition. So, I want to kind of indulge. I want you to indulge us with a couple of answers. Um, first is what you see happening in Australia to mitigate emissions from our energy system over the rest of this decade. So, like a kind of clear-eyed, realist assessment. Like if you had to bet on it, everything you had. Um, and then the second thing I want you to talk to is if you were the kind of Frank, the benevolent policy dictator version of that, what would you do as soon as possible? 
All right. So uh, what we've seen happening in Australia, uh, most importantly recently, is a very large scale and very rapid shift away from coal in the energy sector, and in particular the electricity supply sector, towards renewables, namely wind and solar. And so that shift uh, is happening at a speed that is really um, um, not, not, not really matched actually anywhere else in the world among large countries. Uh, it's a combination of very favorable position, uh, for renewable energy, uh, in Australia, um, and the fact that the coal-fired power plant uh, is aging and creaking and needs replacement anyway. Um, and so we see that happening. Um, this will uh, continue and probably further uh, accelerate, uh, which is really a tremendous thing in order to get Australia's emissions uh, down. Um, uh, and also actually as a model as, as to what, what can happen and should happen uh, elsewhere uh, in the world. And so, you know, uh, a lot of uh, solar is being built, a lot of wind is being built uh, in renewable energy zones. Uh, we will see offshore wind developments probably as well. Uh, we're seeing, uh, you know, the need uh, and, uh, and also investment in transmission expansion, storage, energy storage, which is a necessary complement to renewables. We're seeing commercial investments in grid scale batteries, wonderful thing, uh, really wasn't expected just a few years ago. Um, we're also seeing expansion of pumped hydro storage, uh, some certain uh, technical uh, difficulties and cost overruns there with Snowy too, but nevertheless, over the long, long term, uh, those types of technologies are expected to come in. In industry, we will finally see the introduction uh, of an effective policy mechanism there with the safeguard mechanism, which will effectively put a price on emissions for Australia's largest industrial emitters. Uh, that will create an incentive to dampen emissions there to, uh, if in doubt, invest in the lower emissions alternatives, uh, invest in better kit to reduce emissions, suppress emissions. It will also have industry investing in emissions offsets uh, in the land sector, in the agriculture sector. Uh, and there, of course, the onus will be on regulators and policymakers to make sure that the presumed emissions reductions under those crediting schemes will, will actually uh, be real. Um, we're seeing a shift uh, in transport as well. I mean, electric vehicle uptake is really fast. Um, and, and gradually over time, we will need to see uh, buildings going to to no gas. We'll see need to see uh, better energy efficiency in buildings, more solar and roofs, uh, etc. So you invited me to play the benevolent dictator here as well. I would never be a dictator, benevolent or otherwise. But if we if we set our sights high and and think about what really needs to happen, then. I think we can summarize it as uh, climate change and, and emissions reductions activities and policies here and what you're asking me specifically, taking a much more central role in policymaking, right? Um, and also um, coming with a much, much greater push in terms of investments. The, the challenge we have on our hands is to shift from a system that is heavy on running costs, namely your fossil fuel input costs, right, that we have to one that will run itself almost without ongoing costs, but with masses, massive upfront investment costs, right? And so we will need to mobilize enormous amounts of money to build up this clean energy and industrial and transport system of the future. And this will need to happen quickly over the next decade or two. Um, 
in the big that that's it um on on energy right we'll need to see uh, accelerated closure of coal-fired power stations need to see that in a more systematic way and coordinated way than we have so forth um including regional diversifications faster even faster renewable energy investments grid integration of everything including uh, electric vehicles we will see much we will need to see much greater policy effort right across the economy um uh, heavy transport needs to be electrified. Rail, we need more public transport and we need comprehensive mitigation action also outside of energy and industry. Mark already mentioned it. Agriculture really needs and deserves a big push both on adaptation and emissions reduction uh, technology. In that context, we need a lot more R&D expenditure. Um, this, this has fallen by the wayside. Um, and, you know, this is such a massive push in new technologies and new solutions um, that really cannot be done uh, effectively and efficiently uh, without the proper knowledge basis for this. And urgent investments uh, are needed in that. We also need a proper national strategy on how to go about that. Incredibly, we still have not got a, a, a proper um, national process uh, and national set of documents as to how this will unfold, not just over short to medium term, but towards uh, net zero. We will need to, uh, you know, um, bite into into that uh, slightly sour apple of preparing for a phase down and phase out of fossil fuel exports. This will happen, like it or not, and it needs to be made happen in a way that is actually socially acceptable and and economically digestible. Um, and on the up, on the upside, there's every opportunity for Australia, in fact, to do become uh, a renewable energy export powerhouse. Uh, and once again, we have no uh, consistent strategy for that. So lots of need to really get cracking uh, on all of this in terms of the planning and the investing. Thanks. I, I, um, I guess you don't get to vote for a, a dictator, a benevolent one, but, but maybe I'll choose you anyway. Um, Mark, so over to adaptation. So you, you talked a little bit about um, where you see some of the issues at the moment, but I think interestingly, over the last decade, impacts and adaptation have become, well, at least impacts have become much clearer to people. Like I think previously, I'm not sure if this is your experience, but climate change was a bit more of an academic exercise for people. They imagined some future where there would be problems, but I, I think that now it's it's very real for people. Potentially, there's there's a chance for adaptation's time to to reemerge in Australia. I want to do a similar game as we did with Frank. So so if we you start with those realist glasses on, what uh, sort of impacts do you see for us in Australia with your reference to expertise in agriculture and resources? And then in the world according to Mark scenario, what do we do? How do we prepare and and respond? How do we adapt to those impacts? Yeah, look, I I think what we're already seeing is, is an understanding that people's lived experience in terms of climate is is now different. Uh, we're, we're seeing uh, an increased frequency and severity of extreme events, uh, and we're seeing the impacts of those events ramping up. And and so what we're likely to see over the next decades is we're likely to have a more risky environment overall here in Australia and through our region. So. Uh, droughts, floods, fires, heat waves, cyclones are all likely to increase, uh, both in terms of their frequency and severity. And we're already seeing the impacts of that cutting in uh, with documented impacts on things like agriculture, water resources, health, including mental health. 
And as one example, climate change is already being act- acting as a major drag on agricultural productivity here in Australia and also in many parts of the world. Uh, and so it's it's really uh, causing reductions in productivity compared with what they would otherwise have been. And it's also increasing the variability of productivity. So it's dragging down the average and increasing the variability. So it's a more risky environment for investment. So in those circumstances, we, we need to recognise what's changing um, and move on to the front foot. So we can't be defensive. I think we have to be proactive, as Frank was just talking about. So like Frank, I, I just don't think in terms of the benign dictator sort of scenario, if we want to go into an adaptation sort of stance, um, the last thing we want is a benign dictator um, with uh, some sort of top-down approach of knowledge filtering down into the system to enable people to make better adaptation responses. I think very clearly what we need is a bottom-up approach to adaptation where uh, the knowledge of all the individuals involved can actually get entrained to do new things and better things in our systems. So I, I see that benevolent dictator th- side of things is completely incompatible with our modern understanding of how adaptation should occur. But if we were to sort of go down that pathway, I'd be thinking we need significant governmental level intervention. So we need a national climate adaptation strategy and a national climate adaptation agency to accelerate action on adaptation and to accelerate learning. At a business and community and individual level, I think there's a a need for people to get more informed about both current and future impacts on the things that they value. So that will differ from person to person, state by state, sector by sector. So we need to be context relevant in terms of the information uh, that's provided and made accessible to people. And in doing that, we need to not just look at the problem side of the equation, we also need to look very clearly at the solution side of the equation. So we need to be helping people identify the full range of possible responses, everything from the incremental to the transformational and the pros and cons of each of those responses. And then we need to start to implement those. So we actually put them into action, including a a monitoring and, and evaluation process so we can accelerate our learning because this will not be a one-off change um, and we're not going to get everything right the first time. Uh, So, Leslie, in Fear and Wonder, we like to reflect on both the thinking and feeling that goes into these IPCC reports on how scientists know what they know, but also how it feels to carry that knowledge. And so, how has it affected you to be working on the science of climate change? I think it's it can be a bit of an emotional roller coaster, um, and on any given day, I can feel optimistic and pessimistic, um, sometimes simultaneously, um, for all the reasons that that Frank and and Mark have outlined. You know, we, we do have tremendous opportunities both to adapt and to to reduce our emissions. We've got the know-how, the science and the technology and we need the policy settings and the the flow of of finance to support that knowledge. Um, So I'm I'm often asked if I'm hopeful for the future and I've come to the conclusion that for me hope is a strategy rather than an emotion because if we don't have hope and optimism, then we give up and if we all give up, well, we really are truly lost so I, I cope with this by just thinking to myself, well, what can I do best to help? And I'm just going to focus on that. 
And I hope that everybody else that's concerned about this that has either, as we say, talent, treasure or time to contribute to this incredibly important effort, um, I hope that they will put their time, treasure or talent into it as much as I am. So that's that's what keeps me going. I think this is kind of a good lead-in for the final prompt for you all today. I've been speaking to a lot of scientists about the nitty-gritty of their work, like particular studies or methods and how they fed into the IPCC cycle. Um, and so I've been wondering that now that it's kind of run its course, what happens next? Like we hear a lot about the urgency of the situation. This is a critical decade and how decisions we make now are going to have impacts that echo through millennia. Um, and that is just an extraordinary situation to be in for, for you all at the heart of this. Um, so I'm kind of curious about what interests you all at this extraordinary moment. Like how are you thinking to spend your time in the coming, coming years? Like what sort of research uh, is calling to you or um, would it be that you would consider working on an, the next IPCC cycle or what about climate change and how it might relate to your life outside of academia? Um, so, Mark, perhaps if I can start with you. Thank, thanks again, Michael. So, so I think for me, um, uh, I, I, I spend a lot of time engaging with various stakeholders here and overseas. And so, so on average, I do more than one briefing, presentation, or interview each day. And uh, and so, for me, there's a really important window of opportunity here um, to move people past the previous misinformation and disinformation. Uh, that we've had on this topic um, and to start to embed a context-relevant understanding of the issues and options available to people. And for me, that's a really important contribution that science can make to our society. And it's important to move past the debate, past the problem-framing stage and into the integrated solutions phase. So for me, I'm interested in research that integrates climate adaptation, emission reduction and broader sustainable development in bringing the hard sciences, the social sciences, and also the decision makers together, so you know, right across society. So that's the thing that you know makes me interested. And in relation to the IPCC, um, yes, I plan to put my hand up again. What role I'll have is entirely dependent on election processes or selection processes. Um, and notwithstanding the fact that IPCC can indeed be a challenging process with its you know, really peakiness and its complexity, um, that you've got to juggle IPCC uh, tasks with our day jobs um, and the opportunity cost of engaging in IPCC can be quite high. Um, nevertheless, uh, it's, I think, a really worthwhile thing to do for me. Um, and it's and I know that it's really easy to be stressed during the preparation of IPCC reports, but every time I've been involved in one, and I've been involved in many now, um, afterwards, I've always considered it to be a huge privilege to be part of a process that has actually moved the world towards a better trajectory. Maybe not as fast as we want, um, but it's definitely moved to the world to a better place. Frank, what about you? What's ha what's happening in in your world in the next few years? Yeah, first of all, on IPCC, exactly right. I mean, it's an enormous 
privilege to be able to work uh, on IPCC reports for the IPCC. Um, and of course, it's a matter of nomination and selection and also one's personal decision uh, as as to these trade-offs that that Mark mentioned. So I'm not I'm not speculating about the future there. Um, for for me, uh, you know, already at this point, it's it's a matter of um, uh, of research as well as policy impact and teaching. And there's you know there's an enormous uh, array of um, of of what what I think is is important and exciting research to be done. And you know, at ANU, we've got really a wonderful community of scholars and students uh, on all things climate change and energy transition and related fields and. Yeah, part of our roles is to to help expand that that research uh, universe further, uh, because certainly this is an area uh, that that needs growing, um, uh, and also to help apply uh, the research machinery that we have uh, to important and and new questions. And so, specifically in my case, uh, you know, that includes that's not limited to, but it includes work on the zero carbon transition in Australia, especially in heavy industry. Uh, includes work on trajectories to net zero emissions in the Asia-Pacific region, uh, including working with partners in Indonesia, elsewhere in Southeast Asia, East Asia, you know, Japan, Korea, uh, as well as China and India. Um, and it involves understanding the implications of these shifts for Australia, including in terms of trade and investment um, and the opportunities that arise from that for Australia to supply renewable energy-based export commodities into those markets. So lots to keep us busy uh, and, and for universities to actually help uh, policy processes, uh, help the public debate, uh, and, and also to an extent uh, help the commercial sector with investment decisions. And Leslie, what are your plans? I actually retired formally as an academic last August, and one of the reasons that I did that, even though I'm still connected to Macquarie, one of the reasons I did that was to have more time for climate work. Um, so I'll be doing three main things. Um, I'll con be continuing my work with the Climate Council. I was a, a founding councillor with that organisation. It's an organisation of which I'm tremendously proud and want to be able to contribute even more to that. Um, and one of the things I'm about to begin working on is a report on, on methane because I think methane is um, far less uh, understood by the Australian public in terms of its global warming potential. Um, and the Australian government has recently signed the Global Methane Pledge to reduce methane emissions 30% by 2030, but we don't actually have a plan to get there. So I'm interested in, in helping further that end. Um, secondly, uh, last year I was appointed to the Climate Change Authority, which is the independent body that provides emissions reduction advice and other advice to the climate change and energy minister. So I'll be bringing, uh, hopefully bringing my, both my science and advocacy background to that new role. And thirdly, I've recently joined the board of the Environmental Defenders, um, office. And that is a, uh, a fantastic organisation that provides pro bono legal advice and representation to all sorts of environmental groups, but particularly to people now um, undertaking what we would loosely call climate litigation. And I think the role, the increasing role of the legal system in um, 
shifting us away from fossil fuels to um, safer forms of energy um, is tremendously important. So I'm hoping to help contribute to that from a science perspective as well. Thanks. So uh, now we've got a chance to have some questions from the audience and they've been rolling in. Um, uh, Leslie, we've got one from for you from Rochelle, and she's asking about the link between climate change and biodiversity. You know, climate change has traditionally been thought of as an environmental problem. And of course, it is a huge environmental problem, though, of course, these days, it's appreciated that it's more than more than just the environment. Um, but look, we've our, our biodiversity in Australia is suffering from all sorts of impacts and climate change is increasingly the largest one of those. Climate change also exacerbates many of the other threats that our biodiversity faces. Australia is the extinction capital of the world. We've lost more species since colonisation than virtually any other continent uh, and climate change is increasingly part of that process. So, whether we're talking about bleaching on the coral reef or the drying up of the Murray-Darling Basin or the loss of kelp forests or, or any other ecosystem, uh, climate change and its acceleration, accelerating rate is having real uh, and serious impacts. So the final question today as our time runs out um, is from Sandra, and she's asking, what would each of the panellists recommend for individuals to influence our political and economic systems to accelerate Australia's action on climate change? Well, I can go first then, Michael. Um, you know, every, every Australian over the age of 18 has a vote, first and foremost. And we saw at the last federal election the, the impact of the concern that people in the Australian community have on that election. So if, if every Australian made uh, climate action and climate policy the number one reason for voting for a candidate in their electorate, we'd see even more rapid change even more quickly. So number one, use your political power for the climate. I'm happy to go second. Uh, talk to your friends. Um, you know, inform yourselves. You're probably well informed if you're listening to this. Uh, talk, talk to your friends because, you know, this needs to be a national conversation about the way forward. Um, and, you know, the national conversation on this over the last decade or so was really too, uh, too dominated by adversarial political point scoring. Uh, and we need to get beyond that. Uh, and, and actually just, just have an open conversation about this. Um, you know, about the difficulties, about the trade-offs and about the opportunities. Um, and, and really, you know, uh, once it, uh, it gestates in that way and once, uh, you know, we achieve a, a more widespread kind of common board understanding of where we want to head to this and, and how much importance we want to play on, place on this and, and how much of, uh, of the overall investment we're happy to go towards the climate change challenge, then the political prerequisites uh, are also easier to achieve to actually take action there. All right, Mark, you got the final word. Right. So, so I'd, I'd say that uh, great points made by Leslie and Frank. I think it's really important for people to take individual action and to get informed and to, to do those things that uh, were mentioned and, and including pushing up into both government and business 
uh, to do more and to do better. So our, our expectations is you take climate change much more seriously. Uh, we're not going to buy your product until you do that that type of message or we're not going to invest in your superannuation fund until you actually get uh, a much greener portfolio. And so, uh, you know, um, sort of making those decisions yourself, stepping out and, 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 ex- and pushing up into the system. And I think that's really important. This is not about guilt-tripping individuals to take action. Um, this is about how we actually generate collective action at multiple levels, uh, and that will actually require a different conversation than national conversation that Frank was just talking about. Okay, so thank you all for attending the live event today. An edited version of the session will also be available in the podcast feed for Fear and Wonder. So if you're listening there, thanks for tuning in. If you haven't yet heard the rest of the series, then please search for Fear and Wonder wherever you get your podcasts or check it out via the conversation website. Thanks very much to Professor Leslie Hughes, Professor Mark Howden and Professor Frank Yotso for joining us today and thank you also to Ben Clark from The Conversation for planning, producing and coordinating this episode.